0: Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. COP 27 just ended in in Egypt, and, and it ended with of so last-minute agreements being made. I, I can never figure this out. Because you have these nations at the United Nations, and they're constantly in communication with each other. Can't you work it all out beforehand? Isn't this supposed to be a formality? Part of the conference should be a formality. You know, this is what we've agreed to, so we'll tell the rest of the world. Instead of, well, we want this and you want that and we're going to get that. No, you're not. It just confuses the issue, in my view. So let's talk about COP27 and the climate conference. Our guest was there, as I've told you before, making the case— for nuclear energy is a key component to address climate change concerns. Dr. Chris Kiefer is a staff emergency physician at St. Joseph's Healthcare in Toronto. He is president of Canadians for Nuclear Energy and director of Doctors for Nuclear Energy. Dr. Kiefer, good to have you with us. What's your overall assessment of what how it went?
1: Well, Roy, I, I share some of your frustrations uh, just trying to interpret um, all of you know what Greta Thunberg last year called the blah, blah, blah. Um, there are some new um, commitments that came out of of this conference, but as we've seen in the past, many pledges have fallen flat. Um, the biggest one was uh, a commitment towards developing a loss and damage fund, and basically that's sort of a insurance policy um, of developed countries um, creating a financing mechanism to help um, undeveloped countries cope with extreme weather events. You know. <laughs> It is complicated. There are hundreds and hundreds of countries coming together. Um, but I could I could probably simplify it down to you know a good reason why things seem so irreconcilable. We have the developed world, um, which is responsible for much of the world's emissions, um, is the most resilient um, to, to climate harms. We have to remember that deaths from um, extreme weather events, etc, have dropped 100fold in the last hundred years. And, you know, the paradox is, is that's due to our use of fossil fuels to build sturdy infrastructure, to build good roads, to have strong buildings, um, to have flood protection mechanisms. This all requires things like steel, concrete, agricultural advances, fertilizer, et cetera. And there's still a lot of countries that don't have that. And the tension here is that those countries need help with adaptation, um, need help developing resilience. Um, That's probably going to involve them using quite a bit of fossil fuels. Well, even, even today, I mean,
0: there was a report by the uh, Montreal Economic Institute, and we talked to them about it last weekend or the weekend before. And even today, after more than $5 trillion has been spent on renewables or developing renewables, 84% of the world's energy is from fossil fuels. So it, it's not going away anytime soon, but I, I just want to make this point before I forget. Whether you're someone who has—this is the people I run into, okay— Mm-hmm. whether they're people who are very enthusiastically supportive of doing whatever it takes to address climate change and they're you know they're they're never going to say no and I have friends who are like that and then I have friends on the other side who say yeah, yeah but not if it's going to cost me any money and, and we've seen polling that shows that that a significant percentage of the national population yeah I think climate change should be addressed and then the next question is so how much would you be willing to give up or spend would you be willing to pay more t- no so they but so I have these two bookends that will never meet mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but when I ask them about nuclear energy both sides people on both sides say oh yeah So there is this understanding, and you've made the case so persuasively and passionately for some time with us. There is this understanding that nuclear energy has a really significant part to play. So how does the nuclear energy issue and the debate fit into into COP27?
1: Well, you know, it was inspiring because there were probably about 60 people there um, between three different booths um, who were advocating for nuclear energy. And this wasn't the cloud crowd you'd expect, this wasn't kind of old white men, it was actually a ton of young voices predominantly from Africa, from Sudan, from South Africa, from Sierra Leone, uh, from Egypt, which itself is uh, building what will be the largest power plant of Africa for large nuclear reactors. Um, On the other hand, at the country booths, um, you know, countries like France, which accidentally decarbonized their electricity, building 54 reactors in 20 years in the 70s, um, not a mention of nuclear energy. And I mean, these folks should be proud. In a similar sense, you know, at the Canadian Pavilion, um, we achieved North America's greatest greenhouse gas reduction, which was the coal phase out here in Ontario. And that was powered 90 percent by nuclear energy. Um, But you wouldn't see a mention of that anywhere. Um, There's uh, wind turbines and solar panel uh, adverts absolutely everywhere, plastered across the whole place. But as you say, we've spent an enormous amount of resources and we've only dropped um, our fossil fuel use as about 1% of global primary energy. I think the big thing, Roy, is um, this is going to sound controversial, but we have to respect fossil fuels. Um, Again, we live in a fossil-fueled civilization. Everything that pins this up, the four pillars, things like steel, cement, plastics, fertilizer, you know, it's not just a matter of what's going to cost more. If we follow the dictates of Extinction Rebellion and didn't pull another drop of oil or natural gas out of the ground, 4 billion people would die in about 10 years. And that's because half the world's population wouldn't survive without yeah. synthetic fertilizers, without yeah. natural gas. So we need to respect how powerful these this tools are and ensure that we're doing that and, and that we understand that we need to replace those services with something that's potentially even better. And nuclear does offer us that. Unfortunately, wind and solar really don't. So, yeah, fossil fuels are... So integral
0: to our daily lives, you can't just pull it out because, as you said, you lose so much and billions of people first would suffer and then would die. Now, uh, let me ask you this. I want to make sure that I've got this correct. Canada didn't want language at COP27 in the final statement. I may have this wrong. In which this country supports the phase out of all oil and gas. That kind of made give me a headache. Stephen Gilbo was worried most decisions taken by Ottawa on its version of addressing climate change would be challenged in court and he specifically pointed to provinces ready to go to court. And I guess he's thinking of Scott Moe and Danielle Smith who have both been guests on my program stating their governments will in fact challenge the Trudeau government on decisions Saskatchewan and Alberta assess as being contrary to the best interests of their provinces and they will assert their provincial rights over natural resources as Defined in the Constitution, so I, I, if I have that correctly, that tells me that the federal government did not properly think through its approach and its policies, and forgot that the provinces have constitutional uh, primacy over over natural resources.
1: Well, and, yeah, I think you're probably right there. And I'm yeah. Do so the first time
0: each time, each time I come to the end of one of these disjointed statements,
1: I have the same thought nuclear. No, I I share that frustration. Again, I mean, there are some alternatives to fossil fuels for these vital things like fertilizer. But the the irony here is that they're going to require a lot more energy and they're going to require something called process heat. And that's something that nuclear can do, it can provide that reliable round-the-clock energy that we need to run things like um, electrolyzers that can make um, green hydrogen, um, that we can use to avoid using methane, for instance, in the production of fertilizers, but we need a lot of energy. And it's really daunting, Roy, I mean, it's good to be aspirational and having goals like net zero by X date. But, you know, when you step away from this and look at it realistically, net zero is a centuries project, if it's even achievable, because so much of the UN modeling relies on fantasy, relies on carbon capture and storage that I don't think will ever reach the kind of scale that would be necessary. It relies on something called bioenergy carbon capture and storage, which is basically burning and lots and lots of wood and crops and trying to capture all that carbon and bury it underground. This is fantasy stuff. And it's used often as a way to say, well, nuclear energy is not fast enough. There's no point doing it. You know, if we don't hit our targets in six years or 12 years. Um, and, you know, again, I am I, an aspirational kind of guy. Um, I'm ambitious. I think we should be ambitious. But there's there was just so much energy illiteracy at COP, particularly. Amongst the decision makers, and I think that really dooms its long-term project, this UN Conference of the Parties project, to failure. Um, if people haven't done the basics and, and learned a little bit about energy and what what pins up our civilization, yeah. So, Dr. Kiefer, while you were there, you had a, an encounter with the uh, was it the German Minister of Foreign Aid. Yeah, that's right. Uh, her name's Svenja Schultz. Um, she was actually the minister of uh, of uh, environment um, and nuclear safety because they lump those two things together in Germany. Of course, they do, um, where they so love to uh, to shut down nuclear plants. And you know, for context, um, Germany is a country that has probably gone the deepest in on on energy transition. They've spent half a trillion euros, which used to be a little more valuable a few months ago, um, mostly on wind and solar. Um, And actually, right now, there's a really good app called Electricity Map, and it tells you what the percentages of the grid are right now. They're 55% coal and gas at the moment. Um, So they haven't achieved very much. At the last COP, I met this uh, this minister and um, almost got an interview with her, but her attaché kind of got in between us. Um, she was at an event um, trying to uh, share and I guess impose the German energy transition model on South Africa, a much poorer country, a much less developed country, uh, a much uh, more vulnerable country to climate change. Um, so this year, um, she was at a meeting, a ministerial meeting between the EU and Africa, um, and I got a tip off that she was there and uh, managed to catch her for a quick interview. And you know what I asked her about was the phenomenon of, we know that they hook themselves up to Russian gas and they're in a crisis there. Um, but they've also shut down their nuclear fleet almost entirely. They used to be 25% nuclear. And as a result, um, they are out there on the international market. Um, trying to scramble and buy up every bit of coal and natural gas they can to keep the lights on in Germany. And the effect that's having on African countries is actually they're they're outbidding them. And so the cost of the vital fuels that Africa needs to keep the lights on um, is out of reach. So there's a real question of, you know, what one might call environmental justice going on. Um, and I uh, You know, I didn't get a very substantive uh, answer to the question out of her, Um, but it 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 was—it was—you know—I felt like a good opportunity to speak some truth to power and and make a politician uncomfortable, who, you know, has a lot on her hands. Well, yeah, and and good for you because uh, here's Germany saying one thing
0: and then returning to coal-fired plants when they had the nuclear.
1: Well, they had not only the the capacity; they had the plants. They were there. The infrastructure was there. Germany has the, the best-run nuclear plants in the whole world. Um, they, they achieve these capacity factors, meaning they produce you know 95% of the total possible energy they could. These things are run like absolute clockwork. It's a real shame. Germany's been at the forefront of closing down nuclear plants um, unnecessarily. But you know, there was a really interesting study that came out um, by the Breakthrough Institute, which is a think tank in the U.S., and they looked at the emissions that have resulted uh, from nuclear closures in the globe. North, because every time a nuclear plant gets closed, it's not replaced with wind and solar. It's replaced with coal and gas because that's what you can replace a baseload source that's always on with. And so as a result, the emissions that have increased from those nuclear closures is equal to the total emissions of 37 African countries. You know, there's still uh, that's mind boggling, isn't it? Yeah. There's still a billion people living on the same amount of electricity that you know our fridges here consume in north america there's a real issue of energy poverty and that was you know really i think what motivated a lot of the african members of the nuclear for climate team that were there um, sparking conversations um, and really bringing that role of nuclear to the forefront let me read you an email
0: from a listener this comes from colin hello i'm listening to the show nuclear power is the topic my question is What's the policy for nuclear waste from these potential plants? What is the half-life of the waste? And how do we plan on storing
1: disposal of it? Yeah, I mean, the waste question comes up a lot, and it's, it is fascinating to me. Um, so, I mean, a, a couple quick things here. Nuclear waste fresh out of the reactor, incredibly dangerous. We have to shield it very carefully. But in our society, we make dangerous things safe. You know, we fly in airplanes, a lot of us flew to COP, 30,000 feet going pretty close to the speed of sound, nowhere close to land, you know, 10,000 mission-critical moving parts in an airplane. And we make global aviation quite safe. There's 4.5 billion passenger flights every year and only about 200 deaths a year. Well, the handling of nuclear waste in the 70-year history, there's never been a death associated, despite the danger of this fuel coming fresh of the reactor. But there's good news. Nuclear waste undergoes exponential radioactive decay. In 20 years, 99.9% of the radioactivity is gone, which means that, you know, that really hot fuel that's fresh out, by about 200 years, you could stand about a meter away from it unshielded and get the dose of a CT scan or two. And in 600 years, you can hold the stuff in your hand. So I think a lot of people don't understand that. You know, they've heard this is forever waste, that the you know, half-lives go out millions of years. I mean, we have a radioisotope naturally occurring in our body called potassium-40. It's the predominant um, cation, uh, you know, the predominant positively charged um, atom inside of our cells. And it has a 2.3 billion year half-life. There's a real, I think, misunderstanding here that, you know, this perception that the world is not radioactive, we're constantly bathed in radioactivity, and the amount of nuclear waste that's created is very small um, in the entire 70 year history of its storage, there's not a single incident in terms of a death or fatality associated. We know how to manage this stuff. And dangerous waste are not something that's unique in our modern society, but we put this this microscope on nuclear waste, and it's this diversion from the enormous amount of CO two and air pollution waste that's going into the air every single year. Okay, and I have a, is the best tool we have to replace that kind of waste. We have, is really I have what about the a minute is. left,
0: so we uh, governments come and go, and governments tend to initiate processes and plans that they. Map out 20, 30, 40 years down the road. They'll be long gone by then. So, given that the governments come and go with different philosophies, different approaches, different things they favor, what is the realistic future immediately for the development of nuclear energy in this country?
1: You know, we're, I think, on the verge of a really exciting moment um, because, you know, we're seeing provincial support. Um, We had the life extension and likely refurbishment of Pickering, which keeps, you know, the the that power station, which produces as much electricity as Niagara Falls online. But we also saw the federal government move in with a one billion dollar financing package for the West's first SMR. Canada is uniquely equipped um, to take part in this nuclear renaissance because we've kept our skills up. We're refurbishing our candy Reactor. Um, So I'm I'm really bullish and, and very excited about Canada's contribution here. The IPCC says we need to increase nuclear energy by 100 to 500%. Canada can do its part.
0: If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.